This is Pat Sinecropi, Executive Director of the Water Reuse Association, and you're listening to the Water Values Podcast. The Water Values Podcast is sponsored by the following market-leading companies and organizations. By Mentor APM, intelligent asset management software built for water. By Woodard & Curran, high-quality consulting engineering, science, and operations services. By Intera, innovation and stewardship for a sustainable tomorrow. By Xylem, let's solve water. By the American Water Works Association, dedicated to the world's most important resource. By Black & Veatch, building a world of difference. And by Trinex, trust in what's next. This is session 241. Welcome to the Water Values Podcast. This is the podcast dedicated to water utilities, resources, treatment, reuse, and all things water. Now here's your host, Dave McGibson. Hello and welcome to another session of the Water Values Podcast. As my daughter Sarah said, my name is Dave McGimsey and thank you so much for joining me. Well, I hope everyone had a nice Labor Day weekend in the States and a great weekend elsewhere. We've got a great show for you today. Rodney Clemente, Senior Vice President of Water for Energy Recovery, Inc., joins us. And Rodney does a fantastic job of explaining how energy recovery systems fit into the water puzzle. This is an off-overlooked area of the water energy nexus, and uh, I'm just so happy that Rodney was able to come and sit down with me for a bit and uh, explain the process. So I found it to be a fascinating and enlightening discussion, and I'm sure you will too. So just stay tuned for that because Rodney does a great job. As you know, we always say thank you to our awesome sponsors at the top of every show. The Water Values Podcast is brought to you by Mentor APM, Woodard & Curran, Intera, Xylem, the American Water Works Association, Black & Veatch, and Trinex. And that, my friends, is a terrific collection of impactful companies that have decided to support water industry, thought leadership, and education. And I thank you all. And I'd like for you, the listener, to do me a favor, if you would, please. If you work for or with any of the sponsors, please thank your boss or thank your contact at the sponsor firm and tell them you appreciate their leadership in the industry through the sponsorship. You'd be surprised how far that simple little note of thanks will go. And I thank you for passing on that note of thanks. And as long as you're letting the sponsors know that you appreciate their support of water industry, thought leadership, and education, why not leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, CastBox, or whatever other podcast directory you're accessing the podcast on. It'd be greatly appreciated and will help others find out about the podcast. And of course, please don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you get the automatic downloads every the first and third Tuesdays of the month. Well, before we head on to the interview with Rodney, let's get to our Bluefield on Tap segment with Reese Tisdale of Bluefield Research. So take it away, guys. Well, Reese, welcome to another Bluefield on Tap. How are you doing this week? Uh, pretty good, Dave. Uh, looks like summer's over, so we're back in the swing of things. <laughs> yeah, I can walk from my office to my car without uh, breaking a sweat now. Um, it was so hot that you could just you just pour sweat just sitting there, but uh, fortunately that heat dome is gone. Uh, and, uh, the temperatures were frankly just about as hot as the Seattle Mariners over the past month. Um, so sorry to bring that baseball reference in, but I, I, I knew I, to. I, I was expecting, I thought you were going to say <laughs> it's it, the temperatures are cool enough that when you skip to the car, because you're happy about the Seattle Mariners, <laughs> uh, it's not that bad. So yeah. congratulations. You've made it this far. We're, 
We'll see how September goes. Yeah, that's right. There's a lot of baseball to be played. A lot of baseball to be played. Well, our listeners probably are not as worried about baseball as I am. So what is catching your eye in the world of water this month? So lots of choices, lots of things to talk about. But one of the things that's come up actually uh, over the past couple of days, and I would say, you know, apropos uh, Water Values podcast, I came across it through Patrick Regan on LinkedIn. He had shared this New York Times article, uh, America's Using All of Its Groundwater. Um, I bring up Patrick Regan because he's been a guest on the podcast. I think you guys talked about the power sector back when he was with Evoqua. And for the listeners out there, it is one of my favorites um, because I like the power sector, but also it was a good podcast. Um, But there's this New York Times article that I've had five to 10 people send me over the last 24 hours separately to say, what are you thinking about this? And one of these people was my mother. So I feel like I, I need to give some kind of a response about what the issue is and what the New York Times has done to create such uh, concern or controversy. As it happens, my dad sent me the same article. So <laughs> nice. So uh, I, I'm sure many of the listeners have, have seen the article have, have, uh, or, or at least aware of it. But for those that have not, can you kind of thumbnail out for us what exactly is going on why the new how the new york times has created such a stir well i think you know the thrust of the article is that the new york times has gotten hold of some well uh, or groundwater well data uh 10,000 groundwater wells they've looked at data going back as far as i think 1940 1950 so what they've looked at is what are the levels of those that have been monitored should i say um and they've come to the realization that more than half of these wells, over 50%, are in decline. And there are extremes. There's sort of hot pockets. And it's definitely changed over time uh, in the aftermath of World War II with agricultural growth in the U.S., um, particularly in the Midwest. And pivot irrigation is what they point to, um, is a big user of water. There are concerns about places like the Ogallala Aquifer. But from my perspective, I think that's been ongoing. I've been, we've been talking about the Ogallala Aquifer since at least I was in college um, and concerns there. I think what really stands out to me is it's not just the Midwest um, that is, it's really when you start looking at reuse. And it's not just the Southwest, which is in the news all the time, as we've talked about you're really looking at places like the East Coast that are seeing drawdowns that are pretty significant and of concern to not only uh, municipalities and and water utilities, but also industries and and others as well. Yeah, so it kind of gives us um, a a warning sign or a a shot across the bow in the East Coast for, you know, groundwater depletion, what, what, what's kind of the next step? What happens, um, you know, what, what's, what's the risk in the East Coast? Because the East Coast, for example, you know, it's got the Atlantic Ocean sitting right there, you know, what, 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 where does this go? Well, I think what's interesting is people look to the East and say, oh, there's abundant water. It's not a drinking water or available water supplies is not a problem. Well, in fact, it can be if you live in places like Long Island or Maryland or uh, Virginia, like Hampton, Virginia, there's, you're starting to see saltwater intrusion, um, which was unforeseen you know, certain decades ago. And now, because of population demand, industrial growth, 
they're drawing down on the aquifers. And when there's saltwater intrusion, there's concerns of other contamination that can also take place, whether it be salt infiltrating, but also ar- arsenic as well, which could be um, natural in the in the subsurface, but once it starts entering the groundwater, um, creates a problem. I would also say for those who don't know, as we've talked a lot about California and things like reuse, Florida is the number one market in the U.S. or state as far as um, reuse uh, volumes in the U.S. And the part of that is because of the lime, uh, limestone subsurface its uh, saltwater intrusion has been a historical problem in the state. And therefore, that's why we've seen a lot of uh, reuse activity there. But like I said, this is painting a broader picture um, across the entire U.S. It is uh, more concerning. Yeah. What about, you know, so reuse obviously is, as you mentioned, is a big one. What about um, uh, desal? Are we going to see more desal on the East Coast? I think it depends. Well, one, I would say, is sort of a, a bit of a water geek. It kind of depends on how you define desal, right? You re- basically, fundamentally, you're just taking salt out of water, right? So you can use an RO membrane. So that could be reuse. It could be desal. But I think to what you're referring to is like the Carlsbad desal plant in, um, in Southern California for supplying San Diego. Uh, one would think over time we will see that. It could be brackish initially, and then if there's saltwater intrusion, then we start to see more standalone, large-scale desal. I don't think we'll see it in the near term, one, because of um, the cost, right? It is the most expensive water out there. Um, secondly, you know, compared to reuse, reuse is a lower-cost option and alternative, which is has gained traction over the last you know, five to 10 years um, over across the U.S. And so the third issue is environmental pushback, right? But when you don't have any water and you don't have many alternatives, desal does become a solution. And I think I've said it here before to you, and that is there's no lack of solutions, right? It's a matter of are people willing to pay for it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, uh, for, for those of you out there who haven't seen the map, I, I really suggest you take a look at it because uh, it is a fascinating, uh, fascinating uh, map to, to re- review and analyze and, and check out. So, uh, Reese, as always, great insights and appreciate your time. Thanks for highlighting this issue. And we'll talk to you next week or next month. Thanks so much. All right, Dave. Look forward to talking to you next month. As always, great information from Bluefield Research and Reese Tisdale. Now it's time for the main event, the interview with Rodney Clemente. So let's get that water flowing. Well, Rodney, welcome to the Water Values Podcast. How are you doing today? Doing well, David. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm really excited about our conversation. And uh, I'd love to hear a little about your background and how you came to the water sector. Sure, sure. Uh, my career in water has been simple, but I would say yet complex at the same time. Um, I'd like to say I was born and raised here at Energy Recovery. Um, I've spent my entire 25-year water career here. Uh, so you could say it was love at first sight, you know, with respects to my passion for water. Uh, the journey has been an amazing one thus far, for sure. And I said complex, although I've been only at one company. But when I started at Energy Recovery, we were very much in startup mode. Um, we were just trying to perfect our uh, pressure exchanger technology. We then moved out west to California. We were based in, in Virginia, um, and we 
went through our IPO in 2008, and today we are proud to be the market leader in supplying energy recovery devices uh, for the broader water treatment space. So it's been an amazing uh, ride, like I said, and it's, um, you know, to have a front row seat on what we've been able to accomplish as a company and to see how the industries we serve have evolved over time has been very, very fun. Awesome. So fill me in here. Why am I speaking on a water podcast to uh, a guy that works for an energy recovery firm? Sure. Um, Our core technology, which is the pressure exchanger, uh, when we first came to market with it, we saw that it had a a niche play in in desalination, uh, more specifically in seawater reverse osmosis. Uh, So to take a step back in time, you know, in the 1960s and 1970s, uh, thermal desalination had 100% market share in that space. And when I talked about the industries evolving over time today, um, it's um, that industry has almost flipped on its head. And 100% of the new builds, you know, the greenfield projects that are being built, uh, large-scale desalination projects all around the world are now based on membrane separation technologies. And, um, you know, long story short, when you use reverse osmosis technologies, you are reversing the naturally occurring osmosis process by um, applying pressure um, to the front end of a filter, which we call an RO membrane. And in doing so, you separate the salts from the water. Um, so you pump in you know, um, ocean water, uh, seawater, on the front end of the membrane or the, the super filter, if you will. And on the back side of that membrane, um, there's permeate water that's produced that's, um, that meets quality for drinking water specs. But uh, the byproduct of that is a highly saline brine concentrated stream. And that concentrated stream has a lot of residual energy in it. So in short, what our technology does is it harnesses uh, that pressure energy, otherwise uh, otherwise wasted pressure energy, and it recycles it within the process. And what this does is it dramatically reduces the cost of desalination. Um, In the RO process, it reduces the energy component um, about 60%. Wow, 60%. How, how, can you just describe a little bit how, how the process works? Sure, sure. And uh, let, me, let me take a step back from here uh, quickly just to give you some, some context. When you look at large-scale desalination plants, you know, 100,000 cubic meters per day, 200,000 cubic meters per day, like we see in, in Carlsbad, California, you know, just to give you some, some order of magnitude, a 200,000 cubic meter per day in Southern California is enough to serve the needs of about 500,000 people, you know, half a million people. So when you construct these large-scale desalination plants, there's really two pieces of the pie. You know, the, there's CapEx and OpEx. Um, in general, um, it's about a 50-50 split, um, you know, with respect to the cost. So what we're focused on is the operational expense, the operational piece. So that 50% of the pie, a lot of it is tied up, you know, call it 50% of that 50%, is tied up in energy. Um, the Achilles heel of desalination historically has been that it's a very energy-intensive water treatment process. So what we do is we make desalination affordable. And how we do that with our device is is pretty elegant, um, yet simple. We have one rotating part, uh, which is a ceramic uh, rotor, which is nestled inside of a uh, pressure vessel containment housing, and it rotates. Um, And the rotor has multiple chambers within it. So we put the the high-pressure concentrated brine in direct contact with low-pressure seawater, and it automatically, instantaneously imparts its energy into the seawater feed stream. And that's how we reduce the size of the high-pressure pump. So we, in fact, are like a, a pump in parallel uh, with, the, with the corresponding high-pressure pumps. Can you, can you dive into that a little more and expand on 
how exactly, you know, you're able to reduce the energy load by 60%. Um, I mean, it, for, for my simple non-engineering mind, uh, just, it, it, I haven't put the pieces together yet. I got you covered. So when you can think about um, desalination, uh, seawater reverse osmosis, let's first think about it without an energy recovery device. So when you do not have an energy recovery device, you need to size your high pressure pump for full flow and full pressure, full membrane flow and full membrane pressure. Meaning when you put in 100, let's say 100 gallons per minute of water on the front end, front end of the membrane, you're only able to produce nominally about 40 gallons per minute. So what does that mean? That means um, in an in industry like desalination, 60% of the feed flow is waste. So anything you can do to harness that pressure energy in that waste stream is beneficial to the overall operational expenses and optimization of your water treatment facilities. So what we do is in, when you put the pressure exchanger into a seawater reverse osmosis system, the high pressure pump no, no longer needs to pump 100 gallons per minute. That pump is only, only needs to be designed to pump the permeate flow, the 40 gallons per minute. So you can see that there's a reduction of 60% on the size of that high pressure pump. The remaining 60% or 60 gallons per minute in this example is supplied by the pressure exchanger. Got it. Got it. Okay. So now, now, now I'm, I'm, I'm with you. Uh, so can you talk a little about the, the, the environmental side? Uh, how does, how does, the system uh, assist with the, 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 the brine flow? Sure. Uh, so we're seeing a couple of trends. And I, I mentioned the Achilles heel of desalination, firstly being its energy intensity. Um, so we could start there. Um, desalination typically requires about, a, you know, for nominal seawater, typically requires about 800 to 1,000 PSI or pounds per square inch to overcome the osmotic pressure of the feed water. That's a lot of pressure. Um, and with that comes a, a pretty large um, high pressure pump. Those high pressure pumps are typically, um, you know, driven by, um, you know, natural gas, um, renewable energies, you know, things of that nature. So whatever you can do to reduce the largest consuming energy components within the water treatment facility is a must. And we do that precisely. Um, what our value proposition is in desalination is, again, making it affordable by dramatically reducing the energy intensity and um, requirements of that main high pressure pump. So number one, we reduce the energy component that automatically reduces the CO2 emissions um, you know, from desalination facilities. And then there is a brine component that gets discharged back into the sea. Now, what we've seen um, most recently, and you know, we've seen trends that um, are leaning towards higher recovery, squeezing much more water out of a existing facility than, than in the past. And we're starting to see techniques like MLD and ZLD, uh, medium liquid discharge and zero liquid discharge technologies, which require or which force the process to have not a single drop of brine back into the environment whatsoever. Um, so there's um, advancements in our industry that are leaning towards or leading towards um, lower specific energy consumptions, the amount of kilowatt hours to produce a cubic meter of water, as well as uh, the environmental impact of the brine discharge. Yeah, can and you, we are, are. Yep. I'm sorry. I'm, so, I'm sorry to. Could could you? Yeah, I think you're going there anyway. But could you expand on that a little more? Yeah, sure. So what we're learning um, in desalination is 
that there is potentially a lot of valuable minerals in the brine. So there's this idea of about a circular economy. Um, so if you can imagine, you know, the cost of producing water is always a hot topic, right? To be able to drive the cost um, down is something we've done extremely well as an industry. Um, we've seen prices per cubic meter historically in the, the two, three, four dollar ranges, depending on where you are in the world, for sure, as low as 50 cents um, and below um, in today's um, kind of Middle East uh, large scale desalination plants. So you can see this race to the bottom with respects to the to the price of water. And there's a lot of reasons for that. Um, you know, we talk about sustainability all the time. Energy recovery in our technologies um, is the engine of sustainability for water treatment plants. And what that what does that mean? Number one, um, you know, we talk about the price of water. Uh, the price of water is heavily dependent on energy. Um, what we do is help reduce that energy input. Uh, we can be coupled with renewable energies, which we're seeing now, which helps normalize the energy prices and costs. You know, solar is all the rage out in the Middle East for sure, um, and around the world. Uh, we also have um, you know different. Um, references that have uh, that are being supplied by wind farms and wind turbines, um, you know, things of this nature. And at the end of the day, um, you know, desalination, when you take, when you're using the ocean, you know, the sea as your supply, um, it's a drought proof source of water. Um, you know, so that also drives the sustainability piece. We also look at kind of the life cycle cost of our technology and our device has the highest efficiencies. They last 25 to 30 years minimum, um, and there's no scheduled maintenance. Um, so that's kind of hard to wrap your head around um, as an engineer, you know, for a, a heavy piece of machinery that doesn't require anything. It truly is a plug and play device. And this device, again, um, dramatically reduces, um, you know, the energy intensity and the environmental impact of desalination across the world and across the, the different um, references that we have. Yeah. So we've talked a lot about, uh, seawater desalination. Uh, could you? Are there other applications for this? Let's say, I, I think you've hinted hinted at it in terms of like industrial wastewater treatment or just you know typical um, uh, typical wastewater treatment that a, a municipal system or a publicly owned treatment works might have. Absolutely, absolutely. We we made our we we really made our name. Um, in desalination, but we learned what we learned quickly was that our technology was very versatile and it could be used in other adjacent water treatment um, technologies. And we're doing just that, David. Um, what we've done now is we've developed a low pressure PX for kind of the brackish water systems and municipal wastewater systems. Anywhere that there's a membrane, um, you know, we're interested. Anywhere where there's wasted pressure energy, we're interested. Um, so any heavy industries that consume large amounts of water. Uh, that 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 water needs to be recycled, reused, or treated. We're interested. Um, we have two business units um, under the water business unit at Energy Recovery. One is our base business, which is our desalination business, and the other is wastewater. We just launched our wastewater business, I would say, about two years ago, and we're really excited about the prospects in that space. The wastewater space is a very broad and segmented space, as you know well. Um, but we're tackling things um, in industries like lithium, um, lithium battery manufacturing, um, textiles, um, water reuse, municipal water um, reuse, and things like this. So we've 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 identified and have commercial contracts for over 16 different verticals within that space. You know, including pulp and paper, food and beverage, et cetera. But our value proposition remains the same. 
Um, we harness that lost pressure um, energy and we recycle it back into the process. So in uh, lithium battery manufacturing, we have a pretty interesting um, case here where they're not only using our technology to reduce energy intensity, but they're also utilizing our technology to help them harness some precious um, minerals uh, from that brine stream. So in lithium battery manufacturing and the cathode manufacturing process, and these are for electronic vehicles and the like, um, there's a lot of um, ammonia phosphates in the, in, in the brine. And what we found was that people are buying this um, ammonia for uh, fertilizer production. So it's almost a, that circular economy idea again, where can you offset the cost of water treatment by selling valuable minerals that are typically wasted in the process, which is an interesting idea. I, I'd be interested in hearing more about yeah. like the, the applications in lithium mining, just because of uh, obviously lithium is one of the uh, components of EV batteries. And so it's, that goes a long way towards, towards uh, uh, helping us achieve those goals of transitioning to an electrified economy or uh, an electrified transportation economy. Yeah, we're, we're really excited about our prospects in lithium, and, and we're tackling it from all angles, really. There's uh, lithium mining, uh, which we could we have a play for um, with our technologies. Um, again, large consumers of water, um, you know, for the mining process, and we do have applications in mining, uh, typically in places like Chile and, you know, copper mining and things like this. But we're starting to get our feet wet, so to speak, um, in lithium mining. There's also lithium uh, salt lakes, um, so typically, believe it or not, what they've done in salt lakes is they they basically just dry out and let the water evaporate and harness the leftover lithium. This takes months, years, decades, <laughs> you know, to accomplish, which which you can accomplish the same thing using membrane-based uh, technologies in the matter of minutes, hours, and days. Uh, our technology fits in the same way um, as it does in desalination plants in these lithium salt lake plants. We also look at cathode um, in the, the actual manufacturing of the battery and the wastewater that's being produced in that process. And we also have references there. And then the, the thing we're also starting to look at, the final thing in the lithium um, kind of supply chain that we're looking at is um, lithium battery recycling. And what would that look like? You know, how much water would be consumed there? Um, what are the, what are the um, constituents of the feed water? How nasty is it or not? Um, and can we have a play with our technology in, in helping solve, um, you know, that challenge as well? So we're excited about all those places we can play in lithium. Typically, in, a, in a, any given wastewater vertical, there's really one play. But it, with lithium, as I just mentioned, we have like three or four different plays within that value stream that we can, we can help, you know, our customers uh, be more effective and efficient in the way that they do production. Awesome. So let's talk about another one of the verticals you mentioned. Like, let's just pull one out, like textile manufacturing. What, wh- how does your technology work um, in in the textile industry? Sure, very similarly. Um, but in textiles, in, in a lot of these industries that I mentioned, um, you know, there's a lot of wastewater effluent. Uh, there's a lot of wastewater that's being produced. Um, so there's many, many plants. And we've you know, um, from a supply chain perspective, a global supply chain perspe- perspective, we've kind of outsourced a lot of these heavy industries to China and India. Um, I think there's something on the order of 1 billion pairs of genes that get produced every year. And each pair of genes roughly 
consumes about 7,000, it takes about 7,000 liters of water to produce a single pair of jeans. So you could, you know, um, you could do the math pretty quick um, and see how much water um, you consume just by getting dressed in the morning. So in textile manufacturing, there's a lot of dyes and penetrants within the process um, that is harmful for the environment. And typically, you know, in wastewater, um, compliance comes with a cost, right? And to limit that cost and to make water treatment and wastewater treatment affordable, uh, we, again, harness the wasted pressure energy um, from the textile manufacturing process. And we um, supply that back to the front end of the, of the, of the process. So it's very similar, but what's interesting about the textile um, industries are that the plants are typically small. Uh, so what they do in places like India is they have these CETPs, these common effluent treatment plants. So they'll have um, uh, technological parks, industrial parks, industrial zones, where they have a lot of heavy industries producing a lot of wastewater. And a lot of the wastewaters are collected and sent to these CETPs. So it's almost a um, kind of a mix mash of of, of different wastewaters, if you will. And, but ultimately, you know, the pretreatment, the membrane processes, any thermal components, um, you know, ZLD and, and MLD technologies that are being deployed help um, meet the, or help comply with the, the local state um, and federal regulations on water discharge, which we're seeing an increase of. Um, historically, um, I would say about 20%, only about 10 to 20% of the world's wastewater industrial and or municipal, uh, but primarily industrial, is treated. Uh, so there's a lot of room for improvement here. I think the United Nations Sustainability Development Goal for water, um, wastewater treatment, out to 2030, is to make that number uh, about 50% or more. So there's different regulatory tailwinds that we're following, uh, David, to see if we can help accelerate what we're trying to do and what our customers are trying to do with sustainability and compliance. Yeah. So let, let me ask you this. You, you've identified the SDG goals of, you know, moving from 20 to 50%. Where do you see the future? Where's the most fertile area for deploying your technology to help reach those uh, UN SDGs? We're, we're looking at everything, um, you know, to be, on, to, to be honest with you. I mean, we're, we're, we're looking at every single vertical possible to see where we could deploy our technologies and help kind of increase um, or accelerate you know, the sustainability and compliance of different industries. But, you know, we always, we always start big. You know, I mentioned food and beverage. Um, you know, agriculture is probably the number one um, consumer of water in the world. I mean, that water is being fed to the agricultural sector by different means. It could be industrial wastewater. It can be municipal wastewater. It can be desalination. Um, our technologies are versatile enough to be able to uh, serve all three of those, um, you know, sectors with respect to the different technologies that are being used to serve that space. So we're excited about it. Um, we're also excited about, like I mentioned, the lithium, um, the lithium battery manufacturing space. That the growth rates there are just insane. Every time we look at the TAM uh, for lithium, it grows. Um, so that one's growing really fast. We mentioned the textiles. We mentioned uh, municipal water reuse, food and beverage, pulp and paper. We're all over the places, David. Um, we want to <laughs> we want to leverage our brand and desalination, which is dominant, into the wastewater space. And really help do, and really help um, you know accelerate again the sustainability of that space, and do what we've done um, in desalination. In desalination, when I say we have a dominant uh, position, um, I think we have about a roughly ninety percent market share over the past decade, 
in large-scale desalination plants. So all of the large-scale desalination plants that you see in the press, in the Middle East, in Saudi Arabia, Dubai, um, all around the world, Australia, Spain, um, have our technologies in them. Um, so we want to be able to, to kind of copy-paste, if you will, um, you know, that success story in desalination into water, uh, wastewater treatment. And I always like to say there's not many companies out there uh, that can say that they've really revolutionized an industry. We're one of them. Um, and we're in a unique position where we're able to revolutionize not only what we've done in desalination, but also wastewater treatment. And most recently, we're getting our um, technologies deployed into critical CO2 facilities, um, which is also interesting for us. Yeah. So let, let's come back to that real quick, because we've talked a lot about desal and wastewater treatment. Um, does And the desal, it, my takeaway has been it's primarily coastal. Do you have any any applications uh, for like inland brackish water desal? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, brackish water is is near and dear to our hearts. It's very it's, it's analogous to seawater. Uh, the only difference between seawater reverse osmosis and brackish water reverse osmosis is the salt content. So seawater reverse osmosis plants typically operate on a nominal, let's say, thirty five thousand milligrams per liter of seawater, and that's typically what it is wherever you go around the world, unless you're in the Dead Sea or the Red Sea, something like this, where, where it can reach 40 plus thousand. And then brackish water is defined as something closer to about a thousand to call it 10,000 milligrams per liter. So yes, um, inland brackish facilities um, have several pain points. One of them being energy intensity, we can help solve that. And then the second is, um, in many cases, is brine disposal. Um, and I mentioned that we have technologies now um, that are leading to higher recoveries, um, zero liquid discharge. There's places um, in the U.S. still uh, that truck away, um, you know, the brine from water treatment plants. And that's the most expensive discharge uh, technology you could use, you know, filling up a truck and driving it away. Um, so inland brackish is something we've tackled and are continuing to tackle. We have references in inland brackish facilities today, uh, but it is an interesting segment for us. But you're right. Um, typically, seawater reverse osmosis, for obvious reasons, has been linked to, to coastal, um, you know, the coastal regions. And that makes sense. Um, we know where the population is. You know, the population is typically co-located around the coast. Um, you know, China is a great example of this. I think there's um, about 50 coastal cities in China that have water scarcity, you know, populations of one million or more. Um, and they're going to build de they're going to build desalination plants. You know, this is going to be about a you know, a $50 billion um, addressable market, you know, for the water treatment sector, just the 50 coastal cities in China alone. Um, so we're, we're interested for sure. Yeah. That's, that's mind boggling. Okay. Let's go back uh, and, and, and hit on the carbon uh, decarbonization issue you, you raised. Sure. Um, we're looking at uh, deploying our technologies and we have deployed our technologies in, in commercial references and CO2 refrigeration. And what's happening in CO2 uh, in refrigeration systems, excuse me, is that historically um, refrigeration systems have used synthetic um, refrigerants. And those synthetic refrigerants have a very high global warming potential. Um, the world is now switching to more natural refrigerants like CO2. And what that does is it basically reduces the global warming potential by up to a factor of a thousand. So it's a pretty amazing uh, switch. Now, the, the switch to CO2 comes with a cost, and the cost is that those systems operate at higher pressures. So just like we do in desalination, um, you know, finding areas and industries that have high um, pressures 
and wasted that that are wasted, the pressure is dissipated or wasted through a control valve or just dumped out, you know, into open ocean intakes and things like this. Uh, we harness, um, you know, the the energy within a closed loop CO2 refrigeration system, thus reducing the amount um, of energy consumed by the the compressors. Um, so this is this is big. Um, you know, just looking at Europe alone, um, you know, a thousand supermarkets in Europe. If if we deploy our PX, what we call the PXG, which is our PX gas um, um, for CO2, we can approximately save 43 gigawatt hours of electricity. We can lower electricity costs by about six to seven million euros, and we could reduce the CO2 emissions by almost 10,000 metric tons a year. That's equivalent to about 6,000 passenger vehicles taken off the road in Europe alone. Well, it, it it's just mind-boggling. Uh I could go in so many different directions, Rodney. It is. <laughs> it's uh, it's it, it's truly amazing what you've done and uh, and what what energy energy recovery has been able to accomplish in, you know, from really startup twenty five years ago, right? Um, yep. yep. So, we turned thirty years old uh, last year, I believe. Wow. So, uh, Rodney, you've been absolutely amazing today. I've I've learned so much, and uh, I'm very hopeful. Uh, to see more implementation of your technology. Uh, do you have a leave behind message or something you'd like to, to, to the extent you don't feel you've covered anything? What, what, what would you like to leave the listeners with here? You know, our company was founded, you know, with one piece of technology, like most um, we're uber excited about disrupting multiple industries with that technology. We've done it once we plan to do it again. Uh, so stand by, you know, stay tuned, <laughs> um, you know, see what we're doing, but we're, we're very we're very bullish on our prospects, not only in water treatment, CO2, but also some other things that we're working on, you know, kind of on the back burner. So, you know, it has been an amazing ride, you know, going from that entrepreneurial startup through our IPO. And most recently, we've, we're approaching a $2 billion market cap. So we're, we're quite pleased and excited about what we've accomplished. There's still a lot of work to do. Um, we have some tremendous goals internally. Uh, but anytime you guys think of water, um, any, anytime you guys think of, um, you know, waste, um, pressure wasted energy flow, you know, think of us, you know, and come to us. Um, we're always, we have, you know, innovation is is deep within our, within our um, culture. And we look forward to helping the broader industries serve their, um, meet their challenges head on. Yeah. Great words. Uh, you know, I, I think that so many of us in the water sector need to need to remind ourselves to step back every once in a while and look at the bigger picture and look how water interfaces with energy. And I think you've done a great job uh, providing a glimpse into that, that side of the world for us. So thank you so much for your time, Rodney. Uh, for those who want to find out more about you and energy recovery, where can they go to get that information? Website would be the best. Uh, so www.energyrecovery.com and you know, most of the teams on LinkedIn and all the normal places on social media. Uh, so you could follow our our LinkedIn page as well, but um, not hard to find. Um, you know, just Google <laughs> Energy Recovery, and I think we're the the first ones that pop up there on Google. <laughs> All right, awesome. Well, again, Rodney, thanks so much for your time. You've been absolutely wonderful. Really appreciate it, and uh, look forward to speaking again with you soon. Thank you, David. Thanks for having me. Uh-huh. Bye now. Bye. Well, Rodney was absolutely terrific. Don't you agree? I mean. The importance of energy recovery systems in the water sector will only continue to gain prominence as climate change forces us to find new solutions as we try to keep pace with adaptation. So I, I just think Rodney uh, was, was absolutely great, and I'm, I'm very interested to see 
uh, how all those initiatives he said he had in the hopper start to play out over the coming years. Well, I'd love to know what you thought about the interview. Please check out the show notes page for information and links on this episode. Just Google the Water Values Podcast, click the first link that comes up. That's our home on the web. Uh, Again, Bluefield Research and the Water Values LLC are not affiliates. We just have a joint marketing arrangement, and as part of that, we get a home on the web on Bluefield Research's site. So thank you so much. Well, you can also email me at david.mcgimsey at dentons.com if you have questions or ideas for the podcast, and you can sign up for the newsletter at that landing page I mentioned earlier as well. Well, thank you again for tuning in, and I hope you make it a great day. Plus, I want to give a huge thank you again to our sponsors. Sponsors of the Water Values Podcast for 2023 include Mentor APM, Woodard & Curran, Interra, Xylem, the American Water Works Association, Black & Veatch, and Trinix. And this show would not be possible without those great companies and industry leaders. And again, thank you for listening and for subscribing to the Water Values Podcast. Your support is truly appreciated. In closing, please remember to keep the core message of the Water Values Podcast in mind as you go about your daily business. Water is our most valuable resource, so please join me by going out into the world and acting like it. listening to the water values podcast thank you for spending some of your day with my dad and me well thank you for tuning in to the disclaimer i'm a lawyer licensed in indiana and colorado and nothing in this podcast should be taken as providing legal advice or as establishing an attorney-client relationship with you or with anyone else Additionally, nothing in this podcast should be considered a solicitation for professional employment. I'm just a lawyer that finds water issues interesting and that believes greater public education is needed about water issues. And that includes enhancing my own education about water issues because no one knows everything about water.